Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox. I am your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Jill Weber. She is the author of Having Sex, Wanting Intimacy, Why Women Settle for One-Sided Relationships. Uh, Jill is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Washington, D.C. She has a, has appeared on the uh, several channels, CNN, Discovery Channel. She's uh, written in U.S. News and World Report, Teen, Teen Vogue, and she is an expert on, uh, well, she's an expert, I was going to say, on, on women's issues, and she's an expert who specializes in the impact of culture on female identity and relationship development, so hence her new book, Having Sex, Wanting Intimacy. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Weber. Oh, thank you for, for having me. Uh, we have a website that listeners can go to, too, drjillweber.com, and it's W-E-B-E-R with one B. Okay, so, Jill, this book is for women. I would assume, it seems to me, not that men can't read the book, but we're talking about the high personal costs of one-sided romantic relationships. What does that mean? Why do we need to address this? Well, I think, it, you know, basically, I write this book talking about... Um, sort of a phenomena or a cycle that seems to be happening in our culture. It's not a new phenomena. I think it's been around a long time, but certainly it's happening more and more, particularly with young people where women feel like in order to connect with men that they have to kind of settle for this, you know, some people call it hooking up, um, where you sort of start with a sexual connection, and then oftentimes the woman is sort of hoping that that's going to culminate in some kind of more meaningful connection or more um, emotional intimacy. But invariably, that's not the case, and then she's left feeling disappointed and often turns on herself, feels like, what's wrong with me that I can't make this relationship more meaningful? Um, so I just kind of talk about that phenomena, why women are vulnerable to falling into this and what a woman can do for herself to get out of it. Well, is this um, a problem that's I'm happened? Sorry. Is this? I mean, we have the different generations, the traditionalists, the baby boomers, Gen X, Gen Y. Are we talking about a specific generation, let's say starting with the Gen Xs, or is this true of women at all stages of, you know, dating and... and yeah, I mean, I, in my research, I think it's, I mean, I think it's happened probably, you know, this has probably happened for women for a long time, but certainly with the Gen Xers, it, it began happening more and more that it was socially acceptable, this idea of hooking up. I'm sure, you know, you've heard that word a lot. And, and so hooking up is having gener- sex? Hooking up is really any kind of, it doesn't necessarily have to be intercourse, but any kind of sexual act. Um, but the idea is that it's not really um, like a 
a, a meaningful relationship. You don't really owe the person anything. It's not like you're even going to have dinner necessarily. You're just, it's basically just about the sex act itself. Whether that's intercourse or not, it could be anything really. Um, sometimes well, give me an example of that though. To I, I'd like to, I'm sorry. Uh, give me an example of that, like the hooking up thing you say, because that's what it's, women are hooking up, having sex. Well, like a lot of young women I talk to, you know, they just, they say, you know, this is how you meet and connect with guys. Everybody goes out, hey, let's all meet at this party or this bar, and then maybe there's a guy a woman's interested in or vice versa, and then the evening culminates in, like, hooking up, having sex or, you know, oral sex or making out, you know, something like that. And then the next day, the two people might not talk at all. They may just see each other again at the next um, party or event, or they may not see each other ever again, period. So it's kind of like that. But you don't really owe the person even a phone call or anything. So, all right, now, if that's the case or, uh, you know, that's kind of the moray or the attitude towards, you know, you go out and you have sex, maybe not intercourse, okay, but you hook up, oral sex, whatever else you have, um, why would a woman expect that that would turn to intimacy necessarily? Well, I mean... I think she's hopeful that, you know, the desire, okay, so feeling that male desire in the moment, you know, like it, in these moments, whether you're at the bar or the party or whatever, it feels good. It feels like, okay, he's really interested in, in me. You know, that's how the woman might be feeling. And it's easy to mistake that sexual desire that, that he's also interested in knowing me as a person. No, sometimes that is the case. I don't want to say that never happens. But by and large, it doesn't happen, you know. <laughs> but but the woman might feel like, you know, in the late hours of the evening, I mean, he might even say something that makes her feel like, oh, he gets me or he understands. And that, that feels good. And it feels like, well, if I keep at this, eventually I'm just going to get more of it. And I, I'm just saying that that doesn't really happen. And oftentimes it takes with it a woman's sense of self. She ends up feeling bad about herself in the process. So and you call it, it just, it's just something that women don't really talk about it. They just sort of accept it, that this is the way things go. Well, what about you use the term sextimacy? Is that what we're talking about? Well, I kind of I came up with this term sextimacy um, to talk about it because I think these words like hooking up, some people use judgmental language to describe women like promiscuous, other words are used. All of those things really make it hard for women to feel like they can talk about it. It also makes them feel ashamed or shut down. So this word sextimacy is a combination of sex and intimacy to describe the idea of what is actually a woman, you know, what a woman is um, driven by, and it's, it's the idea of having sex to achieve emotional intimacy, hoping that it's going to lead to meaning. I'm trying to get a handle on the, probably the type of women or what kind of a background or their own feelings of self-esteem and all that stuff that comes into play, because, I mean, you're a psychologist, I assume that you see these women in, in, in practice, but, like, it, it would seem to me the better you feel about yourself, the, the better... Uh, you wouldn't get hooked in, literally, you wouldn't get hooked into feeling that, you know, if I just have sex with somebody, no matter what kind of sex it is, it's necessarily going to lead to intimacy. I mean, do men feel the same way? No. It would seem to me that that would have an impact on um, on that kind of behavior. That's, that's absolutely right, Catherine. I mean, this, the self-esteem is, is a big piece of it. And in the book, I talk about, you know, building that. Um, and when we look at, well, why does this happen? Why do women fall into these situations? And I just want to make the point, you know, women aren't always consciously thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know, this is going to lead to a more meaningful relationship. This stuff just kind of gets played out. And then maybe you look back, you know, at a different stage in your life and think, oh, wow, that, that is what was happening. But it's sometimes when it's happening, women have a hard time noticing it. But um, women who come from sort of one-sided families, so I, I sort of put this case in, 
in the book where, you know, oftentimes girls are socialized to be very nice and sweet and easy. And in some families that goes to an extreme where a little girl isn't attended to emotionally. So her needs aren't um, validated enough or um, she's more about just being good for the, for the parents so that she's not attended to in a way that helps her to take herself seriously. Sometimes that gets a woman into a situation like this where she just hasn't had a lot of relationships that have um, been validating for her needs, and so then it feels very comfortable to, for her to end, in a, oh, end up in a one-sided relationship. But also for many uh, women and girls in our culture, it really doesn't necessarily have to be about a family, but just all the cultural influences in terms of focusing on the external and um, advertising media that directs women that if, if there's something lacking in their lives, if they improve their, themselves in some way physically, um, is a big way that women are encouraged to do this, focusing on their appearance and that kind of thing. If they do that, then they'll attract male desire and everything will be great in the world. So um, women are always on the defensive, kind of it sounds like, or there is that little edge that they have to please their male partner for whatever reason. They have to look good. They have to be very essential. They have to be seductive. And if they do all that, then they'll get what they want. They'll may- maybe they'll get an intimate relationship. That It's kind of that male model of dating that's exactly right. That you know, if you kind of if you keep all these things in mind, you know, you read the, the women's magazines, it tells you how to be a good sexual partner for the man and you keep your appearance taut and you do all these different things, it, it it'll all work out for you. But what ends up happening is those women that really fall victim to those traps um, are very disconnected from themselves. And so, you know, they're not picking men that really fulfill them, you know, make them feel good on the inside. And oftentimes that also means that they don't have good sexual relationships because for women having a good fulfilling sexual partner often means feeling known, you know, feeling valued on it on other levels than just sexual. How about let's define, you know, I think most people who are listening will know, well, they know what sex is. <laughs> we have to assume that, right, whatever kind of sex they have. But intimacy, we have, let's talk, what is intimacy? Let's talk about that because, I mean, you are the psychologist, the expert, and we're trying to achieve intimacy. What is intimacy? And, and I think it's such a vague, big word, right? I mean, it's really hard to define, and it, it probably means something different um, for everyone, you know. But I think in the, in the big picture, you know, we can talk about sexual intimacy. Like you said, we sort of know what that is. But when, when I talk about emotional intimacy in the book, it really comes from this idea that women have told me over the years again and again, I want to feel known. I want to feel cherished. I want to feel like I matter to him. Um, so emotional intimacy is this idea that you can really be who you are with your partner, that he gets you, um, and maybe he doesn't, you know, maybe sometimes he doesn't like certain parts of you, but he accepts it and he loves you in spite of it all. Um, that I like, idea. I like most of that definition, but I'll tell you one word that has always bothered me, and you, I do hear this, particularly from younger women, I want to feel cherished. That has like, well, why should you feel cherished has this kind of thing I want to feel you know, sort of idolized, sort of setting yourself up for, you know, I guess for failure, it seems to me, but I never like the word cherished. That doesn't seem like an does that, equal does kind of... Does feel a, like the, kind of the pedestal? Yeah, it doesn't feel like an equal relationship, but... Yeah, well, I think that, that, that that's a, you know, that's true. I mean, if cherished means that to you, then that, that can be a setup for failure because um, it, it's hard to feel like you're superior all the time. That wouldn't really be being known and being a real person because, yeah, nobody's... Perfect. I guess by cherished, I think it's just this feeling like deeply cared for and um, that that the person really matters. I think it really what I mean by that. But it is a word that a lot of women use. So, you know, I guess it probably depends on the woman what she means by yeah, it. Yeah, I hear that a lot. But 
okay, so we want to we want to feel loved. We want to. I mean, and some of those old words like maybe respected and trust yep. and some of that stuff comes into play. It would seem to me, and it's mutual. Uh, if you want an intimate, if one is seeking an in- intimate relationship, do you think, Jill, that men have more difficulty just the nature of the beast in having intimate relationships that they're not necessarily set up for that in the same way that women have the potential for? Well, I mean, I think it really depends on the men, the man, and certainly we know they, you know, most men do marry and most men do end up having reciprocal relationships with women. So, I think that they are capable of it. It just really depends on where they are in their life. Um, but I think, you know, for women, if you just say, okay, I'm going to kind of bring this guy along, I'm going to make him what I want him to be, that's a mistake. You know, if he's not that person at that time in his life, you can't kind of get him to step up, up to the plate. Um, so I wouldn't say that, that men aren't capable of it, but I think if you choose a man who's not at that point in his life, he's not going to suddenly become that person um, with your ur- urging and encouraging. Yeah, you can't make him into something that he's not. Which yeah, think, and you, you can know, just when, kind of beat your head against the wall in the process. Um, and, and all along the way, you're kind of losing your connection with yourself. You just keep focusing on, if he can do this, then I'll be okay. I just need to get him to step up to the plate. I encourage women to pull back from that and really work on yourself, you know, work on developing your own um, confidence and esteem and that type of thing instead of trying to get somebody else to be something. The concept of pseudo-liberation comes up in your book. What is pseudo-liberation? I think that's what we're talking about, isn't it? It's, I think sometimes young women feel, well, you're, it's okay, you can have sex, there aren't any, uh, you know, mores today that say that you can't have sex, but getting caught up in that, you think that's going to lead to intimacy and not necessarily. Yeah, that's right, Catherine. I think it's really, it's really fascinating. I mean, women are sexually liberated, which of course is, is wonderful. I mean, you can really do what you want to do as a woman. But the, but the other side of this is it's almost become like, um, yeah, the idea of pseudo-liberation that I can be just like a man when it comes to sex. And, um, you know, some, some women will say like, no, I don't care about all that, all that other stuff, you know, flowers and hearts and everything. Um, some will even feel silly talking, saying that they want that, you know, that that just seems kind of needy and sappy to want um, more of a meaningful connection with a man. So the idea of pseudo-liberation, you know, is kind of like it's okay still to be a woman and to be connected with what drives you at your core. It, you know, being that person doesn't mean you're not liberated. It doesn't feel like real liberation to just say you have to be like a man when it comes to sex. That feels just like trying to be something you might not be. Um, so in the book I talk about drinking the Kool-Aid is the idea for convince themselves that all they really want is no strings attached sex, you know, and they'll tell themselves or friends, no, no, I'm not interested in anything else. We just, you know, it was just a good, you know, sexual experience type thing. But when you talk to these women, I'm not saying that never happens. I mean, there, there's probably some women that that is the case for, but by and large, when you talk to these women, they say, they talk about wanting to spend more time with his sexual partner or see him or hoping to run into him or texting him. And those are all signs that the woman is trying to attach to the person, um, not just, it's not just about the sexual release for her. Can you have the opposite? I mean, can you have intimacy? Are you saying that you can have intimacy first and then sex? Or how does that work? <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I think generally you probably have to know, I mean, you have to have some emotional, and in order for this to kind of work with somebody, you probably want to have a modicum of emotion for sex. And I have a couple of assessments in my book or little quizzes you can take to see if there's any emotional intimacy present. If there's uh, enough emotional yeah, well, give us an example present. of some of those self-assessments. Yeah, because I, I forgot to mention that. You, I mean, this book is very uh, practical. Um, you can assess whether or not you... Uh, well, why don't we give us an example of some of those? 
Um, I've got to think about that. I think, it, like, for example, you know, can you talk about sex with this person? So if you can talk about having sex with somebody before you have sex, that's a good sign. <laughs> no, I think that is a great sign. I think okay. that's a perfect example of intimacy. Uh, I mean, if you have to have sex with you know, wherever you are, in some room with the lights off and not talking, and it's just kind of like an animalistic kind of thing. That's not intimacy, right? We know that. that. That's exactly right. And you know what it does? It slows down the process a little bit. You know, it's like it's not just impulsive and in the moment or, you know, when you're intoxicated. It just kind of slows things down a little bit um, so that you're both thinking a little more clearly about what you're doing and if you want this, and you can kind of assess how your partner talks about sex and um, how comfortable you feel, because if if you can't do that at all, then the sex act is probably going to be pretty awkward, and that usually isn't conducive to good sex for women. Great example. I like that one. Is that the best one? <laughs> um, okay, let me think about this. I'm sorry. Think about another one. I mean, you have real life. You have a lot of stories in there from women, and I'd like, give, I'd like to hear some of those examples, too, um, um, because you have specific real-life stories, women, different stages of their life, sex and intimacy. Give us an example of one of those that, that you talk about in the book. Um, okay, an example of a woman who, what was that? I'm sorry. Just give an example like a, of some of the women that you just talk about in the book because you have kind of real-life stories or real examples of, of... Well, an interesting kind of one that can come up, too, that's it's a little bit different than what we're talking about, is sometimes if women had to kind of began their... Um, you know, their introduction to sex, maybe in high school or college, through what I call sextimacy, this kind of thing. Um, maybe they've sort of, the, the thing is, you can actually be in a monogamous relationship and still not have a lot of um, emotional intimacy present. So maybe if a woman started early on, you know, 15, 16, sort of hooking up with guys, and then she kind of continued that pattern through college and eventually maybe even did get married, um, but there's still not a lot of emotional intimacy present. She's still pretty much kind of just trying to, um, the relationship basically is more on his terms than her terms. Sometimes what you can see happen is a woman can, after being married for some period of time, maybe they hit a rough patch, the woman can revert back to sextimacy. So maybe she suddenly has an affair with a coworker, or and, and she may be really surprised by that, kind of like, where did this come from? Um, or she has sort of a random hookup with somebody at a you know, business meeting or a conference. Um, so when somebody has this kind of pattern for a long period of time, it doesn't just go away without some real introspection and reflection, and it can make even having a marriage um, difficult. Well, do you think that women, if they have more experiences, and I don't mean just kind of random experiences or sleeping with every guy that they happen to date or meet at a bar or meet online, but just experience does help you to kind of define yourself and see yourself in a relationship that, you know, you have more of a background, I think that when you just, when you do have a monogamous relationship with a partner or a marriage, it's kind of helpful to have had some experiences that either worked or didn't work to reflect on. Do you I know think that's I mean? absolutely right, Catherine. Yeah, and, and one, one of the chapters I talk about that, it's like you want to date with self-awareness, and what that means is you reflect back on your past partners, you know, and if you don't have any history, then how do you learn, you know, how do you know how to go forth? But reflecting back and noticing some themes, I mean, most people are attracted to a similar type of man, most women, um, and kind of looking at the themes that emerge. Some of those themes might be healthy and some of them might be unhealthy. Um, so, yeah, it's not like having a past is, is a negative. It's just actually be aware of that past and notice how you may be reenacting certain problematic patterns, you know, in your, in your adult relationships. Why do you think women, let's say, who are couples who have been married for a long time, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, begin to have 
uh, sex, for instance, and it's not intimate anymore? How do they lose that intimacy? That's kind of a, a different scenario. Okay, so after being married for 10 or 15 years? Yeah, or being with a partner, whatever, you have a monogamous relationship for so many years, and then suddenly, yeah, you're having sex, but it's not really intimate sex. It's it's So how do you, I mean, that's an, another example of, you know, kind of, that's another example. I mean, sometimes there, it never was intimate sex. You know, sometimes it's like, well, those, er, those early on, you know, those early years or time in the relationship from a woman's perspective was more about feeling his desire for her. And that can hold a person for a while. And then it, it, at some point maybe that, that fades or it's not as intense. And then maybe she becomes aware that it doesn't feel as intimate as she would like. That That's certainly a, a scenario that happens. But if there has been genuine intimacy between a couple um, and then it's lost, you know, that's not a horrible sign. I mean, that does happen. But if you've had it for some period of time, um, really you can work. There are things you can do to get back to that. Um, and it, it's really different for every couple about why that might happen. Some, sometimes it's because there's been a drifting. You know, there just hasn't been a lot of communication, a lot of time to connect for whatever reasons, kids, jobs. Um, sometimes it's the opposite where it's almost like, you're too dependent on each other, you know, or it's like there's no separation anymore. Yeah. I, I, I Does that that answer? In, in social work, we call that, I, I don't know if psychologists call it, but we call it, you know, pre-morbid functioning. Somebody comes in and, <laughs> yeah. you know, how, and uh, if, if they had had intimacy at one point, as you say, there's something to go back to because it was there, but it was, it, you know, the interference, maybe jobs or illness or a lot of things get in the way, but you've had intimacy before. So, um yeah, that's another good example. Because okay, so um, yeah, and that's a good sign if you've had it before. But you're, it's really tough to know, like, um, you know, how do you know that you have intimacy? You know, and um, sometimes that can be kind of like a moving target. And um, but really, it's just just feeling at ease with the person, feeling known, and and not feeling a lot of anxiety around them that you have to get everything right, or you're thinking about well, what will he like and. Um, what's he thinking about? I wonder if he really likes me. And just, you know, all that kind of, if that, you know, sometimes that's normal at the beginning stages of a relationship, but that should kind of fade to an easy comfort, you know. Well, if you go, like, and we only mentioned one, but maybe you'll think of some others, but I was thinking if you do have, like, something in your book, self-assessment, uh, that, that could be helpful because uh, you're right. I think that a lot of women uh, don't talk about intimacy. What is it? What You know, how should I be feeling? You know, what? is an intimate relationship. So I, I think, think that's right. Yeah. So I think that, that, you know, if you have something kind of concrete, well, that that becomes without having necessarily to go into therapy. But and, and I don't think you do. I really want to say that. I mean, I don't think this is a mental health problem. I mean, a lot of the women I talk to are high-functioning, you know, high-achieving, high good jobs. And sometimes they just feel like, you know, relationships are my Achilles heel. I just can't quite get it together. Um, and there are absolutely things you can do on your own outside of therapy to improve that. Well, you're an expert, because I find this interesting. You specialize um, in the impact of culture on female identity and relationship development. So I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking, well, different cultures have different, for women, have different expectations for what intimacy is. That's a great point. Yeah. So Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, and I, you know, of course, limited it to our culture, but, um, but that's, that's very true. I think in the United States, it, this to me is like an area of disempowerment for women. I mean, there's so many obvious ways that women are disempowered that we can look at and we talk about like in, the income disparity and things like that. 
this one is something that I don't think we really talk about. I think women have just accepted it. And in a way, some women have even said it's okay, you know, that, like I said, just kind of settling, saying, no, this is really what I want, or I don't really want to go on dates, and I don't need all that stuff. That's so silly and needy. Um, and, I, and I just really make the case that, no, I think psychologically, and I'm not the only one that thinks this. I mean, a lot of research shows that women are driven by feeling connection, um, feeling um, a sense of belonging and care, and that we shouldn't just dismiss all that and settle for something that isn't really what we want. And you mentioned the word connection, and probably if men are listening to this, they're going to get really angry, but women are used to having connections, and they're used to connecting um, with their children. I mean, that just comes very naturally. And I think sometimes they're intimate with their kids. I think there's just an automatic, usually, in most cases, connection and intimacy yeah. uh, that kind of can translate to their expectations for what they want their partners to be, and it doesn't always work out. Whereas I don't think men have that same experience to connect to. Yeah, I think that's a great point, that women expect it to feel the same as it does with their children. And it, Yeah, and so there is a really a disconnect, I guess, between the expectations of men for intimacy and women for intimacy. Yeah, I think, that, I think there is. I think that's a great point. But I would say um, I think men respond well when women are direct. I mean, men that are ready, when, men, when women are direct about what they need, I think men can hear that. You know, okay, it's that is so, let's stop there because that's so important. You have to be direct. You're so, and I think women sometimes, and I think you've, you've kind of alluded to that during, uh, you know, over the, as we've been talking, but you do have to be direct. I think this expectation is that he should know. He should know how I feel. He should know I don't feel connected. He should know I don't feel intimate. Not true. You have to really be direct. It, it, that's right, Kathy. Yes. And then we can decide, well, if he doesn't know, then this must not really be a good relationship or he must not really care about me. And that's just not how it works. And, a lot of women I talk to are just afraid that if they are direct, it's going to cause some kind of conflict or rock the boat in a relationship. And women generally are afraid to rock the boat in a relationship. But but it's quite the opposite. And, and, and the research shows this. Men respond well. They want to know. And if you're direct and, you know, just put it out in concrete terms, um, they, you know, like I said, men that are capable and ready for intimacy are responsive to that. But yeah. the whole mind reading, you know, he should get it, all that stuff, that really just pulls couples further apart. Yeah. If he really loved me, he would know how I felt or feel. That is a very common thing. Yeah. (laughs) And we know that's not true. That's not true. When you talk to men, they feel often like, hey, give me a shot. You know, let me, you know, at least let me try, but I have to know what it is you need. Exactly. Well, we only have a couple more minutes left. I want to make sure that, because you do have a website, which I mentioned in the beginning, drjillweber.com. That's right. Just one B. And I'm on Twitter at Dr. Dr. Jill Weber, and the book is Having Sex, Wanting Intimacy, and that, that's on Amazon. Oh, that's on Amazon, and you also have a blog, right? Do you have a blog with Psychology Today? I do. I do have a blog with Psychology Today. Great. Well, it's been great talking to you today. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. A great, yes, a real pleasure. Great book, Having Sex, Wanting Intimacy, Why Women Settle for One-Sided Relationships. Have a good day. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, we're going to take a short break, and uh, coming back uh, is my second guest, Marcy Albaher, former New York Times career columnist and vice president of Encore.org. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio.
Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Marcy Albaher is my next guest. She's a former New York Times career columnist and vice president of Encore.org. Her new book is The Encore Career Handbook, which is a roadmap to finding passion, purpose, and paycheck to the second half of life. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Marcy. Thank you, Catherine. Well, before we got on the air, you said that, you know, um, your, your interview was following an interview about intimacy and sex. So you've got sex or passion and purpose in your book, too. So Yeah, we sure do. Right. We talk about passion, but a different kind of passion, usually. Okay. Well, now, this is real. I'm, I'm really interested in this because uh, I have a lot of friends who fall into this category, and I'll just give one more statistic, and then let's talk about it, because you say 9 million baby boomers have chosen alternative traditional retirement models. Not surprising. And there are many more. What, 33 million, 31 million more are interested in making this leap? So let's talk about it. So how do we do it? And uh, why is this changed? Why don't we want to go to Florida, play golf, swim, and eat the early bird specials? Right. You know, it's so funny. It's like if people want to go to Florida, they're still going because of the weather. But there seems to be this real urge to uh, to stay engaged, this real feeling that well, I'm not done done yet. Just because I'm ready to shake it up, and you know, we all might be ready for something different after doing something for 20, 30 years. But you know, the baby boomers are this very educated, very big, um, and very engaged generation who made a lot of things change all through their lives, and they're reinventing the way these years that I don't even want to call it retirement anymore. This is, is it's not a conversation about retirement because I think that concept is kind of dead. Um, and, either and you can't afford to retire. And Marcy, retirement does sound dead. To retire, that means you're out of the yes, picture. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's a right. bad word. I don't like it. <laughs> right. So it's either you can't afford to retire or you have no interest in retirement. But, you know, for, for whatever reason, there are new models showing up. And uh, the new model that we are watching and um, and kind of uh, helping to enable at Encore.org, the nonprofit where I work, is making it easier for people who want to have a second act that contributes to the greater do- good to, for people to do that. And our research, as you said, shows that people are really looking for that. Um, obviously, you're a social worker, so you, you've always been kind of motivated in that direction. 
but there are many, many people who realize that, well, there are ways to work that aren't just about paying the bills. All right, so let's and, talk about that. Let's take it, and uh, I'm not even sure the baby boomers, I mean, you mentioned working for 30, 40 years. I don't even know if they work that long either. You know, people work for 20 years at the most, and then they're ready to, re- I'm not using the word, we do something else. Right. Um, so what are the ways? How do you do it, and, and is it different for different people? You know, say so yes, of course it's yeah. different for different people, and and the motivations for doing it are different for different people. Um, there are people who are burned out; <laughs> they're just tired after doing the same slog for a little too long. There are people who love what they do and just you know solve the same problem too many times, and it's time to to do something that feels fresh again, that feels like you're applying skills in a new way or learning new skills for the first time. Uh, there are people who are forced in this position because they hit the end of the line in what they did. They were laid off. Their industry has disappeared or left them behind. Um, and for those people, it would be just as hard to reinvent and stay in the game in their existing industry as it would be to move into a new field. So people seem to be arriving at this point for a lot of different reasons. But once they get there, there is that urge to say, well, whatever I do next Time is short, and I'm going to make what I do matter. Okay. So how do you do that? Because then you step in. This is what your organization is all about. Okay, I have to retire because my job is defunct, and I, but I still need to work and want to do something else. Or I retired. I've got plenty of money. I've saved. I'm fine. But I have all these skills to use in doing something else. That's another. Those are Actually, those are two different examples. So then what do you do? How do you? Um, right. Yeah. So, so, Catherine, I think there's always two pieces, right? There's the what do you want to do and the how you're going to get there. And um, the book tackles both of those questions, but you may be arriving from just one of those places. You may already know what you want to do and just might need to figure out the how part, or you may need to figure out even what, you, what it is that you want to do. So the first part um, is, is really doing some, like, internal and external work, which is, Look within yourself and, you know, do some of those fun career exercises. We have a whole chapter that we created just for this encore shift of exercises where you can, you know, get back in touch with yourself and think what actually makes you feel excited. What, that's where the passion comes in. You know, what, what gives you a thrill? What comes easily to you? What are the skills that you've used in your life, in your work or outside of your work that you'd like to use more of? What would you like to never do again if you could choose? So there's a, the first part is a little dreamy. It's a little, um, you could do that through um, internal work, through working with a coach or a counselor, through working with someone you trust, or in, I love to, p- people to work on this with other people, to find an encore buddy or start an encore transition group of some kind. The next piece is the how you're going to get there. And, uh, and that involves getting out in the world and trying stuff out. And the best way to do that is to volunteer. I say just give yourself away strategically. So find the things that you're interested in and craft some experiments that let you visit the world you want to live in. And you that might stay be, in that yeah. volunteer I know many people who stay in that volunteer position and find, well, maybe I don't necessarily have to go out and get a, you know, a, a, another type of job. I, I can just do the volunteer, and, and, and that seems to be satisfying enough. And you can... Right. You, you know, you could find an organization where you're a volunteer, you're a pro bono consultant, you're an advisor, you're a board member. You know, there's all kinds of roles, and we talk about the differences between all those kinds of roles. It's also possible that if you're a really valuable volunteer, an organization is going to scoop you up because 
um, organizations of all kinds are looking for really good talent, and everybody these days likes to try before they buy. So that works both sides. You're trying something out, and the organization that you're helping is trying something out. And the beauty is that if you do this kind of work strategically, you feel good about it even if it doesn't end up being a place you stay because you've contributed something and been useful and of value on an issue that you care about. So, Martha, give us an example, like specifically different professions or not necessarily even a profession, but different jobs that have been translated into new volunteer work or another position, like, you know. Yes. So yeah. I was just, I just moderated a panel last night here in New York where I live, and there was a woman, I'll give you two examples because they're pretty extreme. One woman was a former news producer, and she, um, she went into news because she wanted to have a career with impact and to illuminate problems in the world um, and how they were being solved. And she found that with the way the media was changing, it was becoming harder and harder to do that in her job. So she took an early buyout because the networks have been downsizing. And she decided to do an Encore Fellowship, which is a new program that our organization has put out, um, where you get to... where which helps people train from one sector who want to move into the nonprofit sector. And she was matched up with a nonprofit that works in schools on helping uh, poorly performing schools do better. And she used all the same skills in completely new ways. She wrote um, papers that are uh, being reviewed by the Department of Education in Washington right now on um, programs that are working. She's working on talking points and speeches and communication strategy for a website and all kinds of uh, producing video, which she is a pro at, but in very different ways than she was telling those stories before with the media, but found that her skills were extremely transferable. In a more extreme example, there was a guy on the panel who was a cosmetic executive who was an expert at running international businesses, and uh, he did the Principal for a Day program, which is run by Pencil, and uh, it's when people from the corporate sector get to be a principal for a day in a public school, and he has to be sent to a, a tough school, and they send him to Rikers Island, and he found that he had this ability to connect with these young men behind bars, and after doing that a second time, a year later, came up with an idea to start a nonprofit to help young men stay out of prison after they're released, and he used all, he had all these analogies about how he was able to talk to the men about how the skills they had were skills that were really business skills, but the only opportunity they saw was to sell drugs, and he gave them a way of seeing what they were doing as a way to do the same kinds of things in legitimate ways. Well, what he, be needs a mentor. To do, he needs to be, he needs to go to schools of, of social work and teach these social workers. Yeah, you're uh, right. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's quite a story. Right, and they're having great results. I mean, his organization has had huge impact on um, reducing the recidivism rate in young men at Rikers Island. So it's it's directly, you know, he was really able, because he's a number cruncher at heart. You know, he's got a heart, and he's all heart when he talks about it, and then he knows how to talk about the results in a way that a business guy who has always watched the bottom line can do, and that's really important to funders, and all of that has been very helpful to his transition. Yeah, so it all comes together. Right. Okay, Marcy, what about this? Because there are people who have had a job, not that they didn't like their job and they were committed to their job or their profession, but they also in in at the same time had a passion for their what we call advocation or whatever mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and so that once they retire, maybe this is kind of a more traditional way of doing it, they're able to take that, let's say that they like gardening or they like painting or acting or theater and then really kind of 
ramp that up and, and either get a, a job doing that or volunteer or because that's another way of kind of morphing into another career, isn't it? It sure is, and that's kind of the, the subject of my last uh, book was um, I wrote about what I call the slash career, the model where you do more than one thing at a time. And many people have you know, a vocation and an avocation and kind of divide their life in that way. But what I'm seeing at this encore stage is a lot of people figure out a way to take that avocation or hobby or passion and do something really useful in their community around it. I've seen people who had careers in the performing arts or, or um, sidelines in the performing arts and go into, the, into schools and work on running the drama program for kids or starting a community garden, if that's your passion. And there's just so many ways. And the book gives a lot of examples on how you can take your passion and marry it with a community need and kind of really fulfill that urge and get that kind of selfish feeling that comes from doing something very useful and needed. Also, isn't there a trend now for what they call voluntourism, going around yeah. the, when you tr- you're taking your interest in travel and go around the world and then actually taking some of the whatever your skills are and doing something in a different country? Uh, yes, there is definitely. And, and I talk about in the book, I gave some resources of programs that come highly recommended to do that. The thing I would be careful about is, Really thinking about how much you can, how much impact you can really have in kind of a one week immersion somewhere and, and look really carefully about is the program well designed to use volunteers properly? Are you going to really get out of it what you want to get out of it and are you going to give in a meaningful way? So I would just ask those questions, but that's both a useful thing to do with your time and a good experience to figure things out because you'll be trying something out while you do that trip. So how did you get involved in all of this? Because, I mean, you were the former uh, a New York a career columnist for the New York Times, now vice president of Encore.org. Um, did you get... Did you make a career change in the way? <laughs> I did. I did. did. I've made two over the years. I had an early career change in my 30s. I had practiced corporate law for about 10 years, and... Um, I had a crisis of conscience realizing that I was doing a lot of work I didn't feel so good about, and I decided I really needed to make a shift, and it was kind of an urgent feeling in me, and so I voluntarily made that shift. I, I quit my job. I reinvented. I took a bunch of classes in freelance writing and, and, and became a self-taught journalist, really, and I spent the next decade writing for the New York Times and other publications about the changing world of work because that really became my, my passion. And over the course of doing that work, I met and interviewed Mark Friedman, who is the founder of Encore.org, the organization that spearheads all of this um, Encore-oriented work. Our most famous program is the Purpose Prize. We give out $100,000 prizes to social innovators over the age of 60. And the whole point of that is to change the, change the perception of what it means to age and to kind of take this there's a story in the air that there is an aging population that is going to be very hard on the world in a lot of ways. That's going to be hard on our economy. That's going to deplete Social Security. And what are we going to do when walkers outnumber strollers? And what Mark and the other folks at Encore had in mind is what if we reverse that proposition and instead of seeing the aging population as a problem, saw the aging population as a legion of problem solvers who can be deployed in all these new ways. And I wrote about that for the New York Times. I reviewed Mark's book, Encore, which came out in 2007. And I got to know this work, and I got so interested in it that I kept on writing stories about it. And I I got to know much more about this world. And uh, eventually, in the media 
downsizing that was happening everywhere. My New York Times column was canceled. I was a freelancer. And in the budget cuts that were happening during the recession, I lost my biggest client when the New York Times canceled my blog. And right as a result of that, I started talking to Encore.org. And about, you know, they came to me and, you know, were very interested in the writing I was doing. And we came up with a way that I could really join the organization and help to communicate this idea to people who are interested in working on their own Encore. So, yeah. well, so you've I lived through what so many people are going through right now. Yeah, I mean, you're the well, you you're the poster child for losing your job and doing and and become vice president of Encore.org. I think that's fantastic. I want to know, you know, you're talking about older people. I don't know how old you are, but and you don't have to tell me. But the purpose <laughs> prize. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm not shy to say it. I'm 47, and it's relevant because I'm a little younger than a lot of the people I write about. I'm writing about something that I think I'll I'll be experiencing in the next 10, 15 years. Right, exactly. So the purpose prize. Who are the people who have won it? I mean, it's a hundred thousand dollar prize for something unique. And yeah, there. Yeah. Okay, so we've we've had many many winners over the year. We've been doing this for eight years already. One of the guys I just talked about, Mark Goldsmith, who founded Getting Out, Staying Out, the organization that works with ex offenders from Rikers Island. He is a former purpose prize winners winner. I'll give you just a taste of a few from this year. Um, Judy Cockerton, um, out of Massachusetts, is one of the winners we had from this year. She was a teacher and a toy store owner, and she happened to, she and her husband were foster parents, and they had two foster children. And she was so affected by what it meant in her life to become a foster parent, but she was also, as she got to know the foster system, she was, she was realizing that becoming a foster parent is this very daunting prospect for most people, yet the foster care system needs people to be in children's lives in all kinds of ways, not, you know, and she wanted to create a system for people to be involved in children's lives even if they couldn't take on the full responsibility of being foster children. And she started two nonprofit organizations that work, um, that allow people to engage with the foster care system as um, visiting, you know, kind of quote unquote grandparents, um, in various camp and school programs, in various ways that are a much lower commitment than being a full on foster parent. That's a very creative idea. And having been a, a social worker and working in those, you know, kinds of situations, I mean, that's, um, that's so important. So anyway, so she got the $100,000 prize. Right, so she's she's yeah. one of this year's winners. We we had a, another prison story actually this year, very different than Mark Goldsmith. Susan Burton uh, was a woman who was in prison herself for various drug related crimes, and by the time she was forty eight, she had been in and out of prison about six times. She got out of prison with the two hundred dollars that they give you, and was trying to figure out how to get back on track. And she finally found her way into a drug program that got her clean, and she decided that she was determined to make it easier for other women who came out of prison, and she started a residential home that helps women coming out of prison get jobs, build skills, get their life back on track, and she's working out of California. So, I mean, there's all ends of the spectrum in the Purpose Prize, and, and we're open for nominations now. So if you go to Encore.org backslash prize, you can nominate someone. You can even nominate yourself. Yeah, I'm um, good at that. <laughs> so please spread the word about the Purpose Prize. The purpose prize. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I had never heard of it. I mean, I, I, and maybe I'm just naive, or I, I should have heard of it. But 
I mean, that that's such a great idea, people over 60, because it's true, you really have to change your thinking. I mean, you have all these healthy people over 60 with all kinds of experiences and all kinds of education and all of that stuff, and, and instead of using the system, they're the ones who can really contribute to the system. I mean, you just have to think about it in a different way, I guess, and provide Yeah, and it's also, you know, obviously, you know, people see after years of being in a system themselves, they see things that other people don't see. They see opportunities to fix things that are broken, and they often feel there is limited time left to do it. So this prize is really about um, getting people to think about you know, that there's time left to do something big. Um, you may not, you know, need to do something as big as the Purpose Prize winners have done, um, but it's a way of getting people thinking in this way. Yeah, and I think the only way, sort of the old way of thinking was if you're going to do something and you're over 60, well, you can mentor somebody, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it was kind of limited. This is very different. This puts you in another business situation, and it's much more, it sounds to me, sophisticated and um, it, it kind of takes that mentoring thing to the next level. Right. And, you know, staying in the game, one of the things that's likely, that's um, guaranteed to happen is that you will be mentoring. You will be around younger people. The workplace today, you know, if you stay in the workplace today and figure out a new way to do either something new or something old in a new way, you will, by definition, be surrounding yourself with a younger generation that needs your wisdom, that needs your talent and experience, and you will be learning from younger people who do things in new and different ways. So this kind of intergenerational connection is a big part of what the Encore movement is about, making sure that we are using the best talents and experience of all the different generations that are going to be streaming through the workplace today. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think one of the things is, and I've never really agreed with it, although I guess there may be some advantage, but, you know, these segregated communities that they set up where you have people who have, you know, yeah, and even in yeah. some of these segregated housing, you have to be 50 or older, you're not even one, you know, grandchildren aren't allowed. I mean, I always wondered what the how that really benefited anyone. It's kind of the opposite of what we were talking about here, or what you're talking about. Yeah, I just read about this community. I can't remember where it was. Um where there is a community, and this had a lot, this is another like foster child situation, where um, a bunch of single older women who didn't have grandchildren of their own moved into a community where a lot of foster children were living, and it was a way to kind of create those kinds of intergenerational ties that really benefited everyone in the community, and uh, I think we need to think more like that. We're going to see a whole lot of people aging alone, especially women, um, family is often not living together. There are many, many more creative ways to think about housing and living than we are currently looking at. So, Marcy, so Encore.org makes help will help one make those kinds of connections. Let's say anyone um, who's listening is. I mean, we've talked a whole lot about a whole lot of different things, and they, be, you know, were interested. Would they go to the? How does that work? Go to the yeah, website. So the website is a yeah. The website is a good place to start, and obviously the book is our tool that we are putting out to help people make these transitions. And the book is available for purchase anywhere that books are sold. Our website, um, we're not a service provider. Our website is a good place to go to join our mailing list to find out what's going on in your own community. We are not doing things on the ground, but we have a lot of resources on our website that will direct you to what's happening near you, that will help you get involved in this national 
movement and conversation. So if you want to get involved with other people, join our LinkedIn group, join our Facebook page, get involved and meet other people who are doing this kind of work where you can find a community of support. Um, you can also catch me on book tour if you go to look at the books page. I'm all over the country now holding Encore Town Hall meetings in many different cities. So we're putting, you know, this idea, this movement is happening. We are just kind of trying to connect the dots for people. So um, I encourage people to take this into your own hands. Look at what ideas resonate with you and get out and try things and do things and connect with other people where you live who have this Encore sensibility. Uh, connecting the dots, I mean, I think that's the key because people do sit and think about this and where can I go and you go online and there are all these different opportunities, but then how do you do it is really the thing. So this is what you're doing, as you say, connecting the dots. So if you're in Omaha we, you could, and you're listening because to the show, which they may be, uh, there's a place that they can go to. Is that it? Or yeah, so if you go to our website and you go yeah. to the Connect section of our website, um, you'll find your way to a map, and you can actually click on the map and see what's going on where you live. And if you want to catch the book tour, go to Encore.org backslash handbook, and you can see all the places that I'll be going on the tour, and we, we are adding new locations all the time. If you are part of an organization that might want to host an Encore event, drop us a note. All the information is on the website, and we'll consider it if you can pull together a big enough group. And what's a big enough group? Let's say you say you are an organization, you want to, as you, you know, you want to host an encore event. What, what does that mean? Just a hundred like, people or so. So minimum a hundred people that you could get together, and that would be the group that you. Yeah. Right, and we're working with alumni associations, with faith-based organizations, so places where there already is a community of like-minded people together. I'm working with a lot of um, higher ed has taken a real big interest in the Encore idea because people are often going back to school for retraining for their Encores. So, in fact, I'm doing some work with some social work uh, schools um, along the tour. Um, And the the universities and community colleges that are interested in this are often partnering with more than one higher ed institution in their city. In Chicago, I'll be doing this huge event where it's being sponsored by Northwestern University's Alumni Association, and they've gotten about seven or eight other universities in town partnering with them, also reaching out to their alumni organizations and populations. So those are big um, kind of partnerships for us right now. What about, you know, I'm in New York. I think we talked about that before we got on the air, but like the, and, and connected the university at Albany, SUNY, and which is one of the biggest universities, state universities in, in the country. Yeah, um, we, yeah. Um, we have not gone, I have not gone to Albany yet, but if uh, SUNY Albany would be interested, we should talk about it. I was at Pace University last night for a huge event. Um, I have several other events coming up in New York City at the public library and other places. So the idea is to get into a place where it can be open to the public and people can engage with this and with each other and meet some other people who are already in Encore careers. So every time I do an event, there are other people in the audience or on a panel who can talk about what it's like to make this kind of transition. Yeah, I think, you know, as I, I say, almost every show is social worker. You know, you put a face on it. You've got to have somebody up there who's done it or who's right. doing it because that really – that that makes it real and and that gets people's interest. So universities, yeah. What other? I mean, that, I mean, obviously they seem to be you know the most uh, one of the most obvious places. Where else are you going? Um, libraries, libraries, bookstores, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, community organizations. There are some community organizations around the country that are really focused on this encore 
um, idea. So I was in Phoenix, Arizona at a place called Experience Matters, which is basically an on-the-ground incarnation of everything we do at Encore.org. Phoenix has its own Purpose Prize. They have an Encore Fellowship program there. Uh, they ha- their, their Purpose Prize is called the Encore Prize there. Uh, they have a program called um, Experience Corps, which is a large-scale um, program where you could work in schools as a tutor, working as a literacy tutor, and they do all kinds of matching of people and uh, nonprofit and public service opportunities in the community. So in a place like Phoenix, it was easy. There was a natural place to show up, that, and there are several places in the country that have that kind of, that, that amount of Encore activity. So in those kinds of organizations, in, in those kinds of cities, I'm hosted actually by an Encore organization. Yeah, we have a lot of retirees, as I understand it, also. In, in and a lot of unretirees, yeah. people who are retiring and then unretiree anymore. I don't want to use that word because you're describing an attitude shift, and it really right. is an attitude shift. And so you got to—it's important, uh, you know, the words that you use or the words that you don't use. So retirement really should be out of the picture. I think that word. Yeah, we would say they have a large encore population. <laughs> Encore population, experience <laughs> matters, attitude shift. That's what we want to work towards, right? Yes, exactly. All right. Uh, well, we uh, I think we have about one minute left. Have we not said it all? Or do we? I mean, we need to have everybody obviously go to the website, read the book, the Encore Career Handbook, which you can sure. buy. Sure. Yeah. Read the book, spread the word. If you're thinking of launching an Encore, um, download the free Encore Transition Guide, which is on our website on the handbook page. Find someone else to work in your Encore with. Get a buddy. Get a group going. Fantastic. And if you're a coach or a social worker who works with individuals, consider running a group so that people in your community can work on this together. Great. Great talking to you. Lots. Thanks so much, yeah. Catherine. Thanks Thank you. so much, Love Marcy. your show. Great. Yeah. We're going to say goodbye. We've uh, reached the end of the hour. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.